Welcome to the Planet Storytime podcast, where we use the power of our imaginations to create the pictures in our minds for some of the best stories ever told. I'm your host, Thomas Mitchell. Today, we're excited to bring you our stellar top 10 podcast, featuring our 10 most popular episodes ever, starting with Crow and Beetle, Stable Free and Equipoise, The Victor Surf Theme, The Tale of Jeremy Fisher, The Misdirection, A Crow and Beetle Story, The Selfish Giant, The Queen Bee, The Emperor's New Clothes, Ricky Ticky Tavy, and our most popular episode of all time, The Tale of Peter Rabbit. Now, if you can, take a deep breath in and hold it. And let it out. Now we're ready for today's stories. Remember to see the pictures in your head as you listen to the stories. We hope you enjoy it. The Crow and the Beetle by T.M. Gannam In a thick and thriving wood, abound with creatures of all variety, lived a certain crow and beetle with a rather peculiar relationship. If it were up to the crow, there wouldn't be any relationship at all, except for that of dinner and diner. The beetle would be the dinner, and the crow would be the diner. If it were up to the beetle, there wouldn't be any relationship at all either, other than, Hello there, very well, and have a good day. But you see, the crow had a special taste for beetle creatures, and so desired to have this particular beetle for either breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Not that the crow couldn't find other beetles for its dining needs, but this particular beetle posed a rather remarkable challenge. You see, this beetle was of a certain splendid cleverness that made it quite difficult to be taken for food. No, it was not just another beetle. This beetle was an ever-evolving riddle. Mm. And one the crow was determined to solve. But before any of this riddle business started, things were much simpler. I'll try to bring you back to the very beginning of their story together. The very first day they met, the beetle was out and about on one of its daily explores, drinking dewdrops that pool on accommodating leaves and gathering sticks that might look like handy reinforcements to the home nest. When the crow spotted the beetle, ever hungry, the crow saw a delicious midday meal in the plump insect. A bit of a show creature, the crow enjoyed making a presentation of its dining conquests. The crow swept in, wings in full swoop and flutter, creating a gust that rose the wee beetle off its front four feet, the final two clutching at the floor. Good day, said the crow. That is, good day for me, for I shall enjoy a juicy beetle feast. Truly, one of my favorites. The crow uttered grandly with a smug, beaky smile and then paused for the beetle's reaction. The beetle gently blinked while its clever mind tried to devise a plan to avoid being a snack for the presumptuous crow. Oh, 
well, uh, that will be just fine, said the beetle agreeably. Indeed, I feel so much better now that most, I would say most, of my terrible sickness has left my body. It said as gently as it did slowly. Fabulous, bellowed the crow. Well, then I... Uh, wait, wait just a moment. Terrible sickness. You mentioned something about a terrible sickness in your body? Oh, yes, yes. Terrible indeed. Quite the horror. I, I'm sure it's nothing and most likely won't interfere with the pleasantness of your meal. And then the beetle looked somber and with a half-scrunched face appeared to be pushing something out of its grand, diminutive frame, and then looked upward and around. There was no sound, only the suggestion of one. Uh, perhaps some bitter notes, but I doubt it will cause any real significant stomach pain. You mean tummy aches? I do so hate tummy aches, whispered the crow. Oh, yes, yes, stomach pain is also commonly referred to as tummy aches, the beetle said earnestly. Ahem, well, I see, said the crow, pretending not to sound disappointed. Rallying, he echoed, but you are feeling much better, you say? Oh, yes, considering how severely this illness announced itself, we can only hope it's gone now and won't come back, the beetle paused. Like last time? Last time? Oh, goodness, yes, smarted the beetle. Out of nowhere, like a fierce ocean wave. Fierce ocean wave? Embarked the crow so soft as to not incite one. But what is life if not to engage some risk? Lit the beetle. Risk, indeed, mounted the crow. You know, it seems that I, too, might be suffering from a bit of a, a bug, shall we say. Uh, while I would happily devour you effortlessly at this moment, I'm thinking the better of it. Uh, how's about a rain check? Oh, well, suit yourself, supported the beetle. When you are feeling presently well, simply come calling, and hopefully the hawks won't be sailing around looking for their next meal as well. Hawks? caught the crow. Such a number of them that do so enjoy this part of the wood, but as danger may be everywhere, we might as well go about our business just the same, and don't you agree? Uh, yes, uh, quite, managed the crow, feeling suddenly so tired and defeat and desperate for a shift, it took to the air before issuing, Until we meet again! <laughs> Lengthened by the distance as the crow sifted away through the moist, sun-baked air back to its easy nest for a wee contemplation and fast snooze on an empty tongue. Meanwhile, the beetle in a flit jerked back into its nest and in the way of gathering oneself, bounced its breath down to a slow, steady catch of air and took to gazing at itself in a wee mirror made of a piece of broken, clear soda bottle. It is very unbecoming of one to lie, the beetle scolded itself, holding its eyes in a cold stare. Indeed, the beetle was not feeling ill at all, and there were no more hawks in this part of the wood than anywhere else. And then the beetle reminded itself that it was also unbecoming to scold oneself. 
that crow is going to eat me. It would definitely have been unbecoming to be eaten and digested. Though reckoning further, the beetle swung again. Though to lie is to foul against nature, and if scolding oneself fouls also, I should at least attempt to make good on things. But how? The beetle tapped its pincers, thinking, thinking. That crow, how obnoxiously proud! But of course, who can begrudge a spot of hunger? And we all have our favorite flavors, the beetle empathized. I wouldn't doubt Beetle being among the best, the Beetle conceded humbly. And there's no doubt that the crow's hunger shall return. And then suddenly the Beetle erupted. I have just the thing. Like a charge of lightning it darted to its backyard where lining the perimeter was literally a self-made fence about which the Beetle's own discarded shells shed for its entire life lay in consecutive order adjacent to one another, forming its own private barrier, circumambulating the wee property. The strong desire to right the wrong of falsehood allowed the beetle to suffer an opening in the enclosure and carefully remove one of the shells, leaving a section open to the wild wood. Eagerly, the beetle shimmied to the stove and applied the oven to an ample swell, and then straight away took to crushing the shell, pestle to mortar. The beetle then reached for jars containing the sweets of maple sap and persimmon, the sour of crab apples and marjoram, and the bitters of walnut and sycamore bark, and mixed the bunch into a potent mass upon which it poured the thick cream of milkweed stock, and stirred it to a puffy quaff, and then transported the batch to a baking tin and added it to the oven. Judging the time for three whippoorwill calls. The beetle waited for a spell as the forest considered the evening. And waited. And then it heard the distant happy call. Ah, all done, the beetle exclaimed after checking the pie by inserting its left foreleg. Clean as a whistle. The beetle carefully removed the piping hot confection and set it on the edge of the stovetop to cool. Has the crow ever sampled beetle shell pie before? The beetle wondered. The beetle quickly packed up the sweet and savory pie and fastened it to the traveling harness and then the harness to its regal body and followed its extraordinary sense of smell to the crow's roost. Upon arriving, the beetle observed the crow staring blankly through a rhomboid crevice in the hearty sticks of the nest, as if pondering the absurdity of life, until the drag of the beetle's approaching feet startled the crow's head back to face the beetle, whose smile and outstretched legs presented beetle-shell pie. The crow jumped upright and towered over the gracious beetle, who confidently ordered the crow to... Sit down, please, and won't you? The crow, miffed by such presumption, screeched, Beetle, the nerve to find me at my branch and command me in my nest. Ah, quite the same as you did me, quite, the beetle observed. Ah, stammered the crow. 
and to you I bring food, whereas you would mm, take me as food. Isn't that right? Ar, ar. The crow found no words with which to respond. No matter to speak of it. We all do what we must to survive, but wouldn't it be so much better if we were to do so kindly? Yes? Anywho, that is why I am here today, actually. I am trying to survive the kindest way I can, the beetle said, attempting to sound pleasant, and cleared its wee throat and rescued. Shall you some beetle shell pie? Made from my own shell three springs ago. I am sure you'll enjoy it. There was a long pause before the crow could speak. Oh, my, dripped the crow slowly, realizing what was happening. So terribly kind. The crow's eyes moistened as its elegant beaks delicately clasped the pie tin and gently transferred it to the table. Please have some, encouraged the beetle. The crow was still in the way of one collecting oneself and paused further. Won't you join me? requested the crow, hopefully. Oh, no, thank you, said the beetle gently. I must never get too full of myself. It is all for you. I realize you would prefer to have the whole of me, but I am simply not quite that generous of a soul. Oh, dear me, the crow interrupted. I believe you are quite generous indeed, and snatched a morsel of the pie with its long beak. Hmm, fabulous, issued the crow, tilting its noble head from side to side, and continued, Perhaps not quite so fabulous as dining real flesh. Something about the juicy parts... The crow went on perhaps too liberally, and upon realizing this, pinched its stout tongue between the tips of its beak to suspend yet another word. Seeing the look in the crow's eye, the beetle determined its work there was done, and started to sashay to the edge of the branch and offered farewell. Until next time, the beetle called, firming up its harness and scuttling away. Until next but before the crow could utter full reciprocity, it saw the wee beetle suddenly descended upon by an ornery robin, who nipped the whirlwinded beetle between its beaky clasps and began to lift off when the indignant crow instinctively slapped the air vigorously with its lengthy wings and called a mighty shriek that stunned the robin into releasing his clench suspending the beetle in mid-air for three flaps of the departing robin's wings until the now-falling beetle pulled out its seldom-used pocket wings and elegantly navigated the tree's upper limbs until the beetle lit safely, not to mention handsomely, on a fat bough several feet below the crow's nest. The crow looked down at the beetle. The beetle stared up at the crow. The crow and the beetle held stare in a shared knowing that theirs was a strange yet special relationship. The beetle tipped its pincers at the crow and began to descend the tree back to its home in the inner nook of the forest. Until next time, 
called the crow, watching what would have been such a delicious meal, simply walk away. The crow thought that despite the beetle's kindness, and despite the crow's own brand of heroism, the crow still wasn't convinced it could repeat such restraint upon their next encounter. Uh, and I shall cross that bridge when I come to it. The crow consoled itself and began feasting upon the beetle shell pie with great delight, with both the crow and the beetle living to see another day. Once there was a child named Stablefree. Now, Stablefree was a nervous type, always worrying and wondering what would go wrong at any time, anywhere. The poor child was ever a bundle of anxiety. But what if I mess up? What if I fall? What if I throw up? What if they laugh at me? Indeed, valid questions, everyone. But so what? Answered Equipoise, a solid friend and steady counterpoint to Stable Free. It doesn't matter in the end. Uh, this world's too big and all, and how can we manage everything just right, you know? I know, I know, said Stable Free, who did know but couldn't seem to stop being a worrier. You know, Stable Free, tomorrow's the big day. We're going on the big trip to the mud cave for school. I can't make it. I'll never make it. No, never, never in a million years. I can't make it. But everyone has to go. It's part of passing our grade. We don't have a choice. I know, I know. And if I don't go, I will pass our grade. Uh, what am I going to do? You're going to go to the Mud Cave field trip like the rest of us, and you're going to have a fantastic time like the rest of us. But it'll be dark in there, and there'll be bats in there, and what if we get lost in there, and what if... Neither the dark nor bats will hurt us, and no matter what happens, we'll be together, and we'll work it out. Remember, every problem has a solution. We've got this. Well, I know I need to have a good breakfast, but I'll be so nervous. And, you know, riding the bus, I, I, I may not be able to keep it down. And, and then there goes my breakfast, and then I'll have an empty stomach. And, and how will I have the nutrition I need to handle the mud cave? And, and then if I need to act in the face of danger... We'll handle it. Dear Stable Free, we'll handle it. That's what we'll do. Which was the best reassurance Equipoise could offer. And the two dear friends went on their separate ways to their cozy little homes. Equipoise with a quiet confidence that all things could be managed, and Stablefree with a visible tremble, revealing doubt that anything could be managed at all. That night, Equipoise had a splendid evening comprised of homework, dinner, piano lesson, and a seamless bedtime routine that allowed for a quick surrender to dreams. While Stablefree struggled with math homework and launched an ensuing tantrum for the difficulty. The morning came easy of itself as it naturally does, and to the ready equipoise, but it came like a hard brightness to Stablefree. It was the day of Mud Cave, and there felt a heavy awareness as if there was someone hovering about the shoulders of Stablefree, a weight constantly pressing down on the moment. At breakfast, there was the undertow of the thought currents. 
mud cave, a mud cave. Oh, there's no way. What if, how can I, I can't. On went the clothes, however, and for some unknown will that pushes us forward, Stable Free forged through the tide of worry and then reset at the bus stop upon joining Equipoise. You've got this, affirmed Equipoise, anticipating the need for encouragement before even checking in. Indeed, Stable Free's eyes revealed that need upon first contact. Tired, drained, tum-tum in knots, Stable Free received Equipoise as a warm blanket to the cold fear. They boarded the bus together and sat quietly, sharing a seat amidst the cacophony of excited children, ready for the adventure of their lives. Equipoise remained respectfully quiet, recognizing that Stable Free was in no mood to talk. Truly, Stable Free couldn't muster a word and stared blankly ahead, as if a spectator, allowing life to proceed as it will. And it did, as it does, and will do, as it will, on and on. They arrived at school and off the bus they went, the trail of bobbing noises alongside as the two friends entered their classroom to sit for the rules of their trip. Uh, now, children, we expect only the best behavior. Uh, what you're about to do entails some risk. And where there's risk, there could be danger. And now, we believe our mud cave trip today to be what we call a calculated risk, meaning that we've accounted for possible problems we might experience along the way. Uh, while indeed we recognize that anything can happen, we believe it's important for all of us to have challenging experiences such that we can learn to manage difficulty and continue problem solving to the end. And the grown-up chaperones began to clap, and the children took the cue to do the same. But all that cycled in the fragile head of Stable Free was risk, 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 danger, 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 danger. And Equipoise could see it. As we think, so we become, encouraged Equipoise. Remember, whatever the case, we will problem solve to safety. Problem solve to safety. No matter what, we... Equipoise paused and Stable Free chimed in. Problem solved to safety. Problem solved to safety. But never mind, Stable Free. The chances of anything dangerous happening is slim to none. They reboarded the bus and traveled through the woods and plains and hills until they reached the trailhead. Then it was time for the small team of grown-ups to usher the children off the bus and on to a short hike into the wooded hills to find the remote entrance to the mud cave. They came upon the base of a small mound, and there a small hole sat hidden behind some viney growth. An impossibly small hole to consider crawling through. What are we doing here? Where's the mud cave? Uh, this couldn't be it, murmured the other children. Everyone, this is mud cave, 
stated the grown-up in charge, and there was a collective gasp. That's right, right inside here. Now, it may not look like much from out here, but once we slither through this hole, you'll find a whole other world in there. Its very own ecosystem, never hot or overly cold, a livable cool. Though this is not like other caves you may have been in before. While it is like all caves in that it is pitch black inside with no way for our eyes to see anything at all, it is different in that the caves you have visited before probably had lights installed inside so you could see around you. But here in Mud Cave, there are no lights. We will be using flashlights. Flashlights? Stablefree had forgotten to bring one and quickly lost a breath upon the news. And then the grown-up in charge thankfully followed with, No matter if you forgot to bring one, we have plenty. Stablefree's breath returned. You see, no worries, reassured Equipoise, who could see that Stablefree looked truly tense. Besides, I brought an extra one just in case. Now remember our rules, children, and follow me. And one by one, the wee troop of tots began issuing themselves through the small hole in the ground, trusting peace in the dark, and flicked on their flashlights, illuminating what appeared to be a thin tunnel made of stone, opening to a wider tunnel over a still canal of water which required them to press their backs on one side and bridge their legs over to the other scooting themselves sideways along the rocky channel. Somehow, some way, Stablefree was negotiating the canal, eyes straight ahead and serious as a well-sharpened number two pencil. Equipoise looked over and felt a pride that Stablefree was doing so well. You're doing great, Equipoise encouraged. Stablefree, for the first time, realized what was actually happening. Here in the middle of a pitch-black hole in the ground with bats and slimy walls, Stablefree was holding steady in the midst of the harrowing adventure and began to feel a face swell that nudged a smile of confidence that Equipoise noticed on Stablefree's face, prompting a matching smile. When suddenly, there was the sound of a thick plop into the watery canal, accompanied by a terrifying shriek. <gasps> I lost my flashlight! Screamed Makerfuss, who proceeded to holler and cry. Truly, Makerfuss's flashlight had fallen into the canal below and could not be retrieved without great difficulty. Makerfuss's shrill tones of panic bounced off the cave walls and made for a terrible discomfort on the ears of the already tense troop of wee spelunkers. The grown-ups tried to no avail in calming the hysterical child. Even the soothing words of equipoise couldn't ease the frenzied state which had now fully engulfed the true Megafuss. Stablefree was inhaling and exhaling rhythmically with complete attention in a vigorous effort to remain calm. Problem solved to safety. Problem solved to safety. Problem solved to safety. Despite being unsure what that meant exactly, Stablefree could stand it no longer and exclaimed, Okay, 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 now believe me, I get it. 
I know this whole adventure is terribly distressing, and I am very sorry that you lost your flashlight, make a fuss. But you gotta know, though, I can't speak for everyone else in here. Uh, I know that I, for one, am having a very difficult time, too. I mean, really, here we are in a dark, cramped cave, surrounded by all sorts of cave creatures we can't even see, straddling across the sides of a rocky tunnel, trying to get some decent footing. Let me tell you, make a fuss. We need your strength right now, not your weakness. Everyone listened on intently. We all have weakness in us. I mean, until just a few moments ago, that's all I thought I was made of, and not an ounce of strength in me. And then I realized I was actually making it through this cave. I've been dreading this trip for years now, ever since I heard about it on the playground three grades ago. In fact, I've dreaded most of the days of my life, having to come to school nervous every day, afraid of almost everything, like people being mean or teasing me, or even when someone's very nice and, and I don't know what to say, or when I have a test and I just don't know the answers, or, or when the lock on my locker gets stuck, or, or when I accidentally put my shirt on backwards when I get dressed in the dark before school and didn't, don't even realize it until lunch, or, or when I, I spill something at lunch, or if I'm late to catch the bus. Uh, we get the idea... Equipoise interrupted, knowing that Stable Free often needed redirection. Uh, uh, please, uh, continue, Stable Free. Oh, yes, yes, sorry, uh, you, you get the idea. Which, to put a finer point on it, that for all the trouble we must face in this world, day after day, we must put on our bravest face. We mustn't give in to our worries, for what do they do for us anyway? But keep us up at night and make us feel terrible or keep us stuck in this hole in the ground. We must move forward. I believe in you, make of us. And you know what? For the first time, I believe in myself. So let's do this, together. And the children erupted in applause which echoed off the cave walls. Megaphus was now still and quiet, having soaked in the wisdom of Stable Free and issued a grateful... Okay, thanks, sir. I'm all good now. Thanks to Stable Free, order was restored, and the troop continued to scuttle on through the tunnel into the larger channel full of stalagmites and stalactites that looked like giant colored icicles shooting up from the cavern floor and hanging from the ceiling. Here, everyone began to take on a more relaxed quality and found themselves embracing their adventure and appreciating the spectacular subterranean world they were exploring. The children asked questions of the grown-ups as they made fresh discoveries. Stable Free was even smiling and joking with Equipoise as the two surveyed the underground chamber. Equipoise couldn't help but comment on the sudden change in Stable Free. You know, that was some pretty impressive coaching back there. I didn't think anyone could have calmed Megafuss down. Well, I didn't see it coming myself. It's uh, just that, well... I realized in that moment, as scared as I was, and have always been, uh, I've been making it, day after day, and no small thanks to you, Equipoise, my, my dear friend. It helped to share what was true inside me. I'm glad it helped make a fuss, too. It helped all of us, Stable Free. We thank you. And then the grown-ups called for the children to get back in line and return through the thin canal to get back. Stable Free, feeling now so confident, actually shimmied down to where Megafuss's flashlight had fallen and picked it up, which prompted a rebuke from one of the grown-ups. 
Milton Stable Free. We, we didn't say you could go down there. To which Stable Free froze and turned flush and uncomfortably warm by the thought of being in trouble. It was a first. As they boarded the bus, Megafuss sat in the seat across the aisle from Stable Free and Equipoise. Stable Free returned the flashlight to Megafuss, who smiled, looking at Stable Free in a new way. Thanks for helping me today. You're a good friend. Well, no no problem, and uh, thank you for that. I, I think I may be able to be an even better friend now. And then, with a smile framed by pure relief, Stable Free forever became both stable and free. The End
Tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher by Beatrix Potter Once upon a time there was a frog called Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He lived in a little damp house amongst the buttercups at the edge of a pond. The water was all slippy sloppy in the larder and in the back passage, but Mr. Jeremy liked getting his feet wet. Nobody ever scolded him, and he never caught a cold. He was quite pleased when he looked out and saw large drops of rain splashing in the pond. I will get some worms and go fishing and catch a dish of minnows for my dinner, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. If I catch more than five fish, I will invite my friends Mr. Alderman Ptolemy Tortoise and Sir Isaac Newton. The Alderman, however, eats salad. Mr. Jeremy put on a Macintosh coat and a pair of shiny galoshes. He took his rod and basket and set off with enormous hops to the place where he kept his boat. The boat was round and green and very like the other lily leaves. It was tied to a water plant in the middle of the pond. Mr. Jeremy took a reed pole and pushed the boat out into open water. I know a good place for minnows, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. Mr. Jeremy stuck his pole into the mud and fastened the boat to it. Then he settled himself cross-legged and arranged his fishing tackle. He had the dearest little red float. His rod was a tough stalk of grass. His line was a fine long white horsehair. And he tied a little wriggling worm at the end. The rain trickled down his back and for nearly an hour he stared at the float. This is getting tiresome. I think I should like some lunch, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He punted back again amongst the water plants and took some lunch out of his basket. I will eat a butterfly sandwich and wait till the shower is over, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. A great big water beetle came up underneath the lily leaf and tweaked the toe of one of his galoshes. Mr. Jeremy crossed his legs up shorter, out of reach, and went on eating his sandwich. Once or twice something moved about with a rustle and a splash amongst the rushes at the side of the pond. I trust that is not a rat. I think I had better get away from here. Mr. Jeremy shoved the boat out again a little way and dropped in the bait. There was a bite almost directly. The float gave a tremendous bobbit. A minnow, a minnow, I have him by the nose, cried Mr. Jeremy Fisher, jerking up his rod. But what a horrible surprise. Instead of a smooth fat minnow, Mr. Jeremy landed little Jack Sharp, the stickleback, covered with spines. The stickleback fish floundered about the boat, pricking and snapping until he was quite out of breath. Then he jumped back into the water 
and a shoal of other little fishes put their heads out and laughed at Mr. Jeremy Fisher. And while Mr. Jeremy sat disconsolately on the edge of his boat, sucking his sore fingers and peering down into the water, a much worse thing happened. A really frightful thing it would have been if Mr. Jeremy had not been wearing a Macintosh coat. A great big enormous trout came up with a splash, and it seized Mr. Jeremy with a snap. Ow! 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 And then it turned and dived down to the bottom of the pond. But the trout was so displeased with the taste of the Macintosh coat that in less than half a minute it spat him out again, and the only thing it swallowed was Mr. Jeremy's galoshes. Mr. Jeremy bounced up to the surface of the water like a cork, and the bubbles out of a soda water bottle, and he swam with all his might to the edge of the pond. He scrambled out on the first bank he came to, and he hopped home across the meadow with his Macintosh all in tatters. What a mercy that was not a pike, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I have lost my rod and basket, but it does not much matter, for I am sure I should never have dared to go fishing again. He put some sticking plaster on his fingers, and his friends both came to dinner. He could not offer them fish, but he had something else in his larder. Sir Isaac Newton wore his black and gold waistcoat, and Mr. Alderman Ptolemy Tortoise brought a salad with him in a string bag. And instead of a nice dish of minnows, they had a roasted grasshopper with lady bird sauce which frogs consider a beautiful treat, but I think it must have been awful. The End The Misdirection, A Crow and Beetle Story by T.M. Gannam In a thick and thriving wood, abound with creatures of all variety, lived a certain crow and beetle with a rather peculiar relationship. While this pair would seem unlikely to have any relationship at all other than predator and prey, strangely, over time, despite the crow's strong desire to eat the beetle as breakfast, lunch, dinner, or snack, the two have developed what we might refer to as a sort of real friendship. True, most of their interactions involve the crow seeking a fabulous beetle feast and the beetle seeking escape from the crow. But somehow, in the midst of this tense interplay, these two creatures of the earth found a way to appreciate one another. Well, and there you are, wee six-legged beastie. We'll be right back. Hey parents! Yeah, you! Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and there you are, giant two-legged beastie. For indeed, the crow towered over the beetle. Beasties are we, 
exhorted the crow. Beasties are we, agreed the beetle slowly. And today would be the day that I indeed predict that I shall dine on delectable beetle morsels. And I predict that day has yet to come, dear crow, and will not be today. Oh, well, I guess we'll see about that. Oh, yes, I guess we'll see about that, answered the beetle with a here-we-go-again tone, as the other wee creatures of the forest gathered round for what has become known in the wood as one of the more interesting, if not comical, games of back and forth that the crow and beetle now routinely engaged, providing one of nature's very own spectator sports for the other wee creatures who also inhabited the forest. A gregarious group of grackles chirped to each other. Oh, the crow's got it this time, no doubt. Won't get fooled again, no, no. Uh, Never underestimate the power of a bug, chimed the crickets. We're very buggy, it's a thing. The grackles couldn't help but nod in agreement. Then all eyes zeroed in, anticipating action, as the crow readied by sweeping back its splendid black feathered wings in grand fashion, as the crow likes to do. And with eyes laser-focused on the beetle, the crow's mouth opened wide and prepared to snatch the wee bug between its nimble beak, when suddenly the strangest of sounds froze the whole of the forest. It was the beetle uttering guttural calls of randomness and executing some sort of a dance with outlandish gyrations, plunging legs to and fro, eyes crossed and tongue protruding, and truly saying nothing but sounding so incredibly strange. The crow stood still as air, its wings still spread, and looked down at the beetle who was continuing to jump awkwardly, issuing its soundscape of absurd gibberish. The beetle finally stood in place and looked up at the crow who seemed to tuck the shoulder of its right wing neath its beak and asked, Hey, uh, uh, what was that? The beetle issued matter-of-factly. The crow wasn't sure if it should have known what the beetle was saying and looked to the grackles and crickets for assistance, but their blank stares could offer none. Not wanting to appear ignorant, the crow's ego decided to err on the side of caution and managed, Oh, well, uh, yes, yes, of course, well, uh, everyone knows that. The crow looked for a response from the chirping gallery. The grackles and crickets nodded to each other, not wanting to appear out of touch either, as the beetles scanned everyone's reactions and figured the strategy was working. The beetle released another spill of gibberish and hopped on one leg, darting the other five arrhythmically in all directions, eyes still crossed, making for a rather less than appealing snack for the crow. Uh, uh, yes, well, uh, I see. Uh, 
search the crow to find a social etiquette with which to stamp closure on their interaction. Well, I, I, I had better get going, um, though it has been quite a pleasure. But what about the Beetle Feast? Egged the chorus of Grackling Cricket. Ah, yes, well, uh, not today, uh, not right now. Uh, yes, I forgot about what the Beetle knew already, that today was not the day for the feast. I simply got the schedule wrong. Uh, my bad. Uh, yes, uh, well, we'll see you, and a good day. And the crow, in a fluttering flourish, zipped clear of the disappointed audience, who was left both speechless and unentertained. The beetle gave the grapplers and crickets another for good measure, causing the befuddled huddle to step back, and then the clever bug strode away to find its way home. The last of the day's sun peppered through the forest canopy as the beetle plowed a heady traverse home through the maple and sycamore, oak and apple trees. All the while, the beetle thought to itself, My goodness, but if I have to act like a complete fool just to make it home to supper, I mean really. That crow, I know it means well and can't help its gustatory instincts, but the lengths I must go to to steer clear of that bird, I... And just then, the beetle heard a squealing tussle of fowl, that is, birds engaged in battle, a flush with a winged warfare, a vigorous and awful squawking of hostility, and realized it was the crow engaged in contentious conflict with a hawk, squaring off over a defenseless mouse for the prize of flying away with an evening meal. The beetle could see that the crow was struggling to hold its own against the much bigger and stronger hawk, and for the first time observed fear in the crow's eyes. The wee beetle's large heart began to swell, and a courageous conviction came over the extraordinary bug, who then began to issue a stream of outrageous sonic ridiculousness and disturbing genuflection that made the whole forest stop yet again. The crow and hawk interrupted their roughhousing to take in the compelling distraction that truly could not be ignored and tilted their birdie heads in an effort to understand what they were hearing and seeing. Upon noticing that it was a delicious beetle treat making such a racket, the hawk licked its beak in hunger, but the beetle continued its nonsensical performance art. And then the hawk gave a look of distaste, and its tongue slipped back inside its beak, and it almost seemed as though its brow began to furrow. The hawk looked at the crow with concern, and the crow looked back at the hawk with a Shucks if I know shrug, and the hawk realizing that the treat they had been fighting over was long gone, and being a creature of determined action. The hawk decided to waste no more time in this section of the wood and flew off towards the sunset to calculate the odd character of life. The crow looked across the interwoven branches of pine, oak, and maple that spread between it and gave the beetle a grateful nod. The beetle clicked its pincers in response. The crow, unsure what to say, managed 
Well, that worked out, didn't it? The beetle blinked and said, Well, indeed it did, didn't it? Indeed it did, smiled the crow. A silence passed. The crow, not sure if it should say anything else, decided to just say what was on its mind and released, Hmm, I am still looking for that evening supper and a juicy beetle feast. And quickly the beetle interrupted with, (laughs) To which the crow, receiving the point straight away, issued a, Right then. Uh, Well, uh, have a splendid evening and perhaps we'll see each other tomorrow and... uh, (laughs) And suspending any more comment, the crow lifted off with a flourish over the forest canopy and bellowed, Until we meet again. And a soft smile spread across the beetle's wee face as it scuttled to the comfort of its cozy wee nest. The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde Every afternoon, as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large and lovely garden with soft green grass. Here and there over the grass stood beautiful flowers like stars, and there were twelve peach trees that in the springtime broke out into delicate blossoms of pink and pearl, and in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly that the children used to stop their games in order to listen to them. How happy we are, they cried to each other. One day the giant came back. He had been to visit his friend, the Cornish ogre and had stayed with him for seven years. After the seven years were over, he had said all that he had to say, for his conversation was limited, and he determined to return to his own castle. When he arrived, he saw the children playing in the garden. What are you doing here? He cried in a very gruff voice, and the children ran away. My own garden is my own garden said the giant. Anyone can understand that, and I will allow nobody to play in it but myself. So he built a high wall all around it and put up a notice board. Trespassers will be prosecuted. He was a very selfish giant. The poor children had now nowhere to play. They tried to play on the road, but the road was very dusty and full of hard stones, and they did not like it. They used to wander round the high wall when their lessons were over and talk about the beautiful garden inside. How happy we were there, they said to each other. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant, it was still winter. The birds did not care to sing in it, as there were no children, and the trees forgot to blossom. Once a beautiful flower put its head out from the grass, but when it saw the notice board, it was so sorry for the children that it slipped back into the ground again and went off to sleep. 
the only people who were pleased were the snow and the frost. Spring has forgotten this garden, they cried, so we will live here all year round. The snow covered up the grass with her great white cloak, and the frost painted all the trees silver. Then they invited the north wind to stay with them, and he came. He was wrapped in furs, and he roared all day about the garden and blew the chimney pots down. This is a beautiful spot, he said. We must ask the hail on a visit. So the hail came. Every day for three hours he rattled on the roof of the castle till he broke most of the slates, and then he ran round and round the garden as fast as he could go. He was dressed in grey, and his breath was like ice. I cannot understand why the spring is so late in coming, said the selfish giant, as he sat at the window and looked out at his cold white garden. I hope there will be a change in the weather. But the spring never came, nor the summer. The autumn gave golden fruit to every garden, but to the giant's garden she gave none. He is too selfish, she said. So it was always winter there, and the north wind and the hail and the frost and the snow danced about through the trees. One morning the giant was lying awake in bed when he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be the king's musicians passing by. It was really only a little linnet singing outside his window. But it was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to him to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head, and the north wind ceased roaring, and a delicious perfume came to him through the open casement. I believe the spring has come at last, said the giant, and he jumped out of bed and looked out. And what did he see? He saw a most wonderful sight, through a little hole in the wall the children had crept in, and they were sitting in the branches of the trees. In every tree that he could see, there was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again that they had covered themselves with blossoms and were waving their arms gently about the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. It was a lovely scene. Only in one corner, it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all round it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow, and the north wind was blowing and roaring above it. Climb up, little boy, said the tree, and it bent its branches down as low as it could, but the boy was too tiny, and the giant's heart melted as he looked out. How selfish I have been! Now I know why the spring would not come here. I will put that little boy on the top of the tree, and then I will knock 
down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground forever and ever. He was really very sorry for what he had done. So he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the children saw him, they were so frightened that they all ran away, and the garden became winter again. Only the little boy did not run, for his eyes were so full of tears that he did not see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom. And the birds came and sang on it. And the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw that the giant was not wicked any longer, came running back. And with them came the spring. It is your garden now, little children, said the giant. And he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to market at twelve o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played, and in the evening they came to the giant to bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion, the boy I put into the tree? The giant loved him the best, because he had kissed him. We don't know, answered the children. He has gone away. You must tell him to be sure and come here tomorrow, said the giant. But the children said they did not know where he lived and had never seen him before. And the giant felt very sad. Every afternoon when school was over, the children came and played with the giant. But the little boy whom the giant loved was never seen again. The giant was very kind to all the children, yet he longed for his little friend and often spoke of him. How I would like to see him, he used to say. Years went over, and the giant grew very old and feeble. He could not play about anymore, so he sat in a huge armchair and watched the children at their games and admired his garden. I have many beautiful flowers, but the children are the most beautiful flowers of all. One winter he looked out of his window as he was dressing. He did not hate the winter now, for he knew that it was merely the spring asleep, and that the flowers were resting. Suddenly he rubbed his eyes in wonder, and looked and looked. It certainly was a marvelous sight. In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree quite covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were all golden, and silver fruit hung down from them, and underneath it stood the little boy he had loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy, and out in the garden he hastened across the grass and came near to the child, and they embraced and remained friends forevermore. The End The Queen Bee 
two kings' sons once started to seek adventures and fell into a wild, reckless way of living and gave up all thoughts of going home again. Their third and youngest brother, who was called Whitling and had remained behind, started off to seek them, and when at last he found them, they jeered at his simplicity in thinking that he could make his way in the world while they, who were so much cleverer, were unsuccessful. But they all three went on together until they came to an anthill, which the two eldest brothers wished to stir up, that they might see the little ants hurry about in their fright and carrying off their eggs. But Whitling said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be disturbed. And they went on further until they came to a lake, where a number of ducks were swimming about. The two eldest brothers wanted to catch a couple and cook them, but Whitling would not allow it, and said, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be killed. And then they came to a bee's nest in a tree, and there was so much honey in it that it overflowed and ran down the trunk. The two eldest brothers then wanted to make a fire beneath the tree that the bees might be stifled by the smoke, and then they could get at the honey. But Whitling prevented them, saying, Leave the little creatures alone. I will not suffer them to be stifled. At last the three brothers came to a castle, where there were in the stables many horses standing, all of stone, and the brothers went through all the rooms until they came to a door at the end, secured with three locks, and in the middle of the door a small opening through which they could look into the room. And they saw a little gray-haired man sitting at a table. They called out to him once, twice, and he did not hear. But at the third time he got up, undid the locks, and came out. Without speaking a word, he led them to a table loaded with all sorts of good things, and when they had eaten and drunk, he showed to each his bedchamber. The next morning the little gray man came to the eldest brother, and beckoning him, brought him to a table of stone, on which were written three things directing by what means the castle could be delivered from its enchantment. The first thing was that in the wood, under the moss, lay the pearls belonging to the princess, a thousand in number, and they were to be sought for and collected. And if he who should undertake the task had not finished it by sunset, if but one pearl were missing, he must be turned to stone. So the eldest brother went out and searched all day. But at the end of it, he had only found one hundred. Just as was said on the table of stone came to pass, and he was turned into stone. The second brother undertook the adventure next day, but it fared with him no better than with the first. He found two hundred pearls, and was turned into stone. And so at last it was Whitling's turn, and he began to search in the moss. But it was a very tedious business to find the pearls, and he grew so out of heart that he sat down on a stone and began to weep. As he was sitting thus, up came the ant king with five thousand ants, whose lives had been saved through Whitling's pity, 
and it was not very long before the little insects had collected all the pearls and put them in a heap. Now the second thing ordered by the table of stone was to get the key of the princess's sleeping chamber out of the lake. And when Whitling came to the lake, the ducks whose lives he had saved came swimming and dived below and brought up the key from the bottom. The third thing that had to be done was the most difficult, and that was to choose out the youngest and loveliest of the three princesses as they lay sleeping. All bore a perfect resemblance each to the other, and only differed in this, that before they went to sleep each one had eaten a different sweetmeat, the eldest a piece of sugar, the second a little syrup, and the third a spoonful of honey. Now the queen bee of those bees that Whitling had protected from the fire came at this moment, and trying the lips of all three, settled on those of the one that had eaten honey. And so it was that the king's son knew which to choose. Then the spell was broken. Every one awoke from stony sleep and took their right form again. And Whitling married the youngest and loveliest princess and became king after her father's death. But his two brothers, who thought they were so special, were quite humbled. The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen Many years ago there was an emperor who was so excessively fond of new clothes that he spent all his money on them. He did not trouble himself in the least about his soldiers, nor did he care to go either to the theater or for a hunt, except for the opportunities that afforded him to display his new clothes. He had a different suit for each hour of the day, and as of any other king or emperor, one is accustomed to say, he is sitting in council. It was always said of him, the emperor is sitting in his wardrobe. Time passed merrily in the large town which was his capital. Strangers arrived every day at the court. One day, Two scoundrels, calling themselves weavers, made their appearance. They gave out that they knew how to weave stuffs of the most beautiful colors and elaborate patterns, the clothes manufactured from which should have the wonderful property of remaining invisible to everyone who was unfit for the office they held or who was extraordinarily simple in character. These must indeed be splendid clothes, thought the emperor. Had I such a suit, I might at once find out what and who. These must indeed be splendid clothes, thought the emperor. Had I such a suit, I might at once find out who in my realms are unfit for their office, and also be able to distinguish the wise from the foolish. This stuff must be woven for me immediately. And he caused large sums of money to be given to both the weavers in order that they might begin their work directly. The two pretended weavers set up two looms and affected to work very busily, though in reality they did nothing at all. 
They asked for the most delicate silk and the purest gold thread, put both into their own knapsacks, and then continued their pretended work at the empty looms until late at night. I should like to know how the weavers are getting on with my cloth, said the emperor to himself after some little time had elapsed. He was, however, rather embarrassed when he remembered that a simpleton or one unfit for his office would be unable to see the manufacture. To be sure, he thought he had nothing to risk in his own person, but yet he would prefer sending somebody else to bring him intelligence about the weavers and their work before he troubled himself in the affair. All the people throughout the city had heard of the wonderful property the cloth was to possess, and all were anxious to learn how wise or how ignorant their neighbors might prove to be. I will send my faithful old minister to the weavers, said the emperor at last, after some deliberation. He will best be able to see how the cloth looks, for he is a man of sense, and no one can be more suitable for his office than he is. So the faithful old minister went into the hall, where the scoundrels were working with all their might at their empty looms. What can be the meaning of this? thought the old man, opening his eyes very wide. I cannot discover the least bit of thread on the looms. However, he did not express his thoughts aloud. The impostors requested him very courteously to be so good as to come nearer their looms, and then asked him whether the design pleased him, and whether the colors were not beautiful, at the same time pointing to the empty frames. The poor old minister looked and looked. He could not discover anything on the looms, for a very good reason. There was nothing there. What? thought he again. Is it impossible? Is it possible that I am a simpleton? I have never thought so myself, and no one must know it now if I am so. Can it be that I am unfit for my office? No, that must not be it either. I will never confess that I could not see the stuff. Well, minister, said one of the impostors, still pretending to work, you did not say whether the stuff pleases you. Oh, it is excellent, replied the old minister, looking at the loom through his spectacles. This pattern and the colors, yes, I will tell the emperor without delay how very beautiful I think them. We will be much obliged to you, said the impostors, and then they named the different colors and described the pattern of the pretended stuff. The old minister listened attentively to their words in order that he might repeat them to the emperor, and then the impostors asked for more silk and gold, saying that it was necessary to complete what they had begun. However, they put all that was given them into their knapsacks and continued to work with as much apparent diligence as before at their empty looms. 
the emperor now sent another officer of his court to see how the men were getting on and to ascertain whether the cloth would soon be ready. It was just the same with this gentleman as with the minister. He surveyed the looms on all sides but could see nothing at all but the empty frames. Does not the stuff appear as beautiful to you as it did to my lord the minister? asked the impostors of the emperor's second ambassador, at the same time making the same gestures as before and talking of the design and colors which were not there. I certainly am not stupid, thought the messenger. It must be that I am not fit for my good, profitable office. Oh, that is very odd. Uh, however, no one shall know anything about it. And accordingly, he praised the stuff he could not see and declared that he was delighted with both colors and patterns. Indeed, please, your imperial majesty, said he to his sovereign when he returned. The cloth which the weavers are preparing is extraordinarily magnificent. The whole city was talking of the splendid cloth which the emperor had ordered to be woven at his expense. And now the emperor himself wished to see the costly manufacture while it was still in the loom. Accompanied by a select number of officers of the court, among whom were the two honest men who had already admired the cloth, he went to the crafty impostors who, as soon as they were aware of the emperor's approach, went on working more diligently than ever, although they still did not pass a single thread through the looms. Is not the work absolutely magnificent? said the two officers of the crown already mentioned. If your majesty will only be pleased to look at it, what a splendid design, what glorious colors! and at the same time they pointed to the empty frames, for they imagined that everyone else could see this exquisite piece of workmanship. How is this? said the emperor to himself. I can see nothing. This is indeed a terrible affair. Am I a simpleton, or am I unfit to be emperor? That would be the worst thing that could happen. Oh, oh, the cloth is charming, said he aloud. It has my complete approval. And he smiled most graciously and looked closely at the empty looms, for no one on no account would say that he could not see what two of the officers of his court had praised so much. All his retinue now strained their eyes, hoping to discover something on the looms, but they could see no more than the others. Nevertheless, they all exclaimed, Oh, how beautiful! and advised his majesty to have some new clothes made from this splendid material for the approaching procession. Magnificent, charming, excellent, resounded on all sides, and everyone was uncommonly happy. The emperor shared in the general satisfaction and presented the impostors with the ribband of an order of knighthood to be worn in their buttonholes and the title of gentlemen weavers.
the rogues sat up the whole of the night before the day on which the procession was to take place and had sixteen candlelights burning so that everyone might see how anxious they were to finish the emperor's new suit. They pretended to roll the cloth of the looms, cut the air with their scissors, and sewed with needles without any thread on them. See, cried they at last, the emperor's new clothes are ready. And now the emperor, with all the grandees of his court, came to the weavers, and the rogues raised their arms as if in the act of holding something up, saying, Here are your majesty's trousers. Here is the scarf. Here is the mantle. The whole suit is as light as a cobweb. One might fancy one has nothing at all on when dressed in it. That, however, is the great virtue of this delicate cloth, said all the courtiers, although not one of them could see anything of this exquisite manufacture. If your imperial majesty will be graciously pleased to take off your clothes, we will fit on the new suit in front of the looking glass. The emperor was accordingly undressed, and the rogues pretended to array him in his new suit, the emperor turning around from side to side before the looking glass. How splendid his majesty looks in his new clothes, and how well they fit, everyone cried out. What a design! What colors! These are indeed royal robes! The canopy which is to be borne over your majesty in the procession is waiting, announced the chief master of the ceremonies. I am quite ready, answered the emperor. Do my new clothes fit well? asked he, turning himself round again before the looking glass, in order that he might appear to be examining his handsome suit. The lords of the bedchamber who were to carry his majesty's train of robes felt about on the ground as if they were lifting up the ends of the mantle and pretended to be carrying something, for they would by no means betray anything like simplicity or unfitness for their office. So now the emperor walked under his high canopy in the midst of the procession, through the streets of his capital, and all the people standing by, and those at the windows cried out, Oh, how beautiful are our emperor's new clothes! What a magnificent train there is to the mantle, and how gracefully the scarf hangs! In short, no one would allow that he could not see these much-admired clothes, because in doing so, he would have declared himself either a simpleton or unfit for his office. Certainly, none of the emperor's various suits had ever made so great an impression as these invisible ones. But the emperor has nothing on at all, said a little child. Listen to the voice of innocence exclaimed his father, and what the child had said was whispered from one to another. But he has nothing on at all! At last cried out all the people. The emperor was confused, for he knew that the people were right, but he thought the procession must go on now, and the laws of the bedchamber took greater pains than ever to appear holding up the train of robes, although in reality there was nothing there to hold. The End
Ricky Tikki TV by Rudyard Kipling. This is the story of the great war that Ricky Tikki Tavi fought single-handed through the bathrooms of the big bungalow in Segali Cantonment. Darzi, the tailor bird, helped him, and Chuchandra, the muskrat, who never comes out into the middle of the floor but always creeps round by the wall, gave him advice. But Ricky Tikki did the real fighting. He was a mongoose. Rather like a little cat in his fur and his tail, but quite like a weasel in his head and his habits. His eyes and the end of his restless nose were pink. He could scratch himself anywhere he pleased with any leg, front or back, that he chose to use. He could fluff up his tail till it looked like a bottle brush, and his war cry as he scuttled through the long grass was. One day, a high summer flood washed him out of the burrow where he lived with his father and mother, and carried him kicking and clucking down a roadside ditch. He found a little wisp of grass floating there and clung to it till he lost his senses. When he revived, he was lying in the hot sun on the middle of a garden path, very draggled indeed, and a small boy was saying. Here's a dead mongoose. Let's have a funeral. No, said his mother. Let's take him in and dry him. Perhaps he isn't really dead. They took him into the house, and a big man picked him up between his finger and thumb and said he was not dead but half choked. So they wrapped him in cotton wool and warmed him over a little fire, and he opened his eyes and sneezed. Now," said the big man. He was an Englishman who had just moved into the bungalow. "Don't frighten him. We'll see what he'll do." It is the hardest thing in the world to frighten a mongoose because he is eaten up from nose to tail with curiosity. The motto of all the mongoose family is "Run and find out." And Ricky Tikki was a true mongoose. He looked at the cotton wool, decided that it was not good to eat, ran all round the table, sat up and put his fur in order, scratched himself, and jumped on the small boy's shoulder. "Don't be frightened, Teddy," said his father. "That's his way of making friends." "Ouch! He's tickling under my chin," said Teddy. Ricky Ticky looked down between the boy's collar and neck. Snuffed at his ear and climbed down to the floor where he sat rubbing his nose. Good gracious," said Teddy's mother, "and that's a wild creature. I suppose he's so tame because we've been kind to him." All mongooses are like that," said her husband. "If Teddy doesn't pick him up by the tail or try to put him in a cage, he'll run in and out of the cage all day long. Let's get him something to eat." They gave him a little piece of raw meat. Ricky Ticky liked it immensely, and when it was finished, he went out into the veranda 
and sat in the sunshine and fluffed up his fur to make it dry to the roots. Then he felt better. There are more things to find out about in this house, he said to himself, than all my family could find out in all their lives. I shall certainly stay and find out. He spent all that day roaming over the house. He nearly drowned himself in the bathtubs, put his nose into the ink on a writing table, and burned it on the end of the big man's cigar, for he climbed up in the big man's lap to see how writing was done. At nightfall, he ran into Teddy's nursery to watch how kerosene lamps were lighted. And when Teddy went to bed, Rikki-Tikki climbed up too. But he was a restless companion, because he had to get up and attend to every noise all through the night and find out what made it. Teddy's mother and father came in to look at their boy, and Rikki-Tikki was awake on the pillow. I don't like that, said Teddy's mother. He may bite the child. He'll do no such thing, said the father. Teddy's safer with that little beast than if he had a bloodhound to watch him. If a snake came into the nursery now... But Teddy's mother wouldn't think of anything so awful. Early in the morning, Rikki-Tikki came to early breakfast in the veranda, riding on Teddy's shoulder, and they gave him banana and some boiled egg. He sat on all their laps, one after the other. Then Rikki-Tikki went out into the garden to see what was to be seen. It was a large garden, only half cultivated, with bushes as big as summer houses, of marshal Neil roses, lime and orange trees, clumps of bamboos, and thickets of high grass. Rikki-Tikki licked his lips. And this is a splendid hunting ground, he said and his tail grew bottle-brushy at the thought of it, and he scuttled up and down the garden, snuffing here and there till he heard very sorrowful voices in a thorn bush. It was Darzee, the tailor bird, and his wife. They had made a beautiful nest by pulling two big leaves together and stitching them up the edges with fibers, and had filled the hollow with cotton and downy fluff. The nest swayed to and fro as they sat on the rim and cried. What is the matter? asked Rikki-Tikki. We are very miserable, said Darzee. One of our babies fell out of the nest yesterday and Nag ate him. Hmm, said Rikki-Tikki. That is very sad, but I am a stranger here. Who is Nag? Darzee and his wife only cowered down in the nest without answering, for from the thick grass at the foot of the bush there came a low hiss, a horrid cold sound that made Rikki-Tikki jump back two clear feet. Then inch by inch out of the grass rose up the head and spread hood of Nag, the big black cobra, and he was five feet long from tongue to tail. 
When he had lifted one third of himself clear off the ground, he stayed balancing to and fro exactly as a dandelion tuft balances in the wind. And he looked at Ricky Ticky with the wicked snake's eyes that never change their expression, whatever the snake may be thinking of. Who is Nag? said he. I am Nag. The great Brahm put his mark upon all our people when the first cobra spread his hood to keep the sun off Brahm as he slept. Look and be afraid. He spread out his hood more than ever, and Ricky Ticky saw the spectacle mark on the back of it that looks exactly like the eye part of a hook and eye fastening. He was afraid for the minute, but it is impossible for a mongoose to stay frightened for any length of time, and though Ricky Ticky had never met a live cobra before, his mother had fed him on dead ones and he knew that all a grown mongoose's business in life was to fight and eat snakes. Nag knew that too, and at the bottom of his cold heart he was afraid. Well, said Ricky Ticky, and his tail began to fluff up again. Marks or no marks, do you think it is right for you to eat fledglings out of a nest? Nag was thinking to himself and watching the least little movement in the grass behind Ricky Ticky. He knew that mongooses in the garden meant death sooner or later for him and his family, but he wanted to get Ricky Ticky off his guard, so he dropped his head a little and put it on one side. Let us talk, he said. You eat eggs. Why should not I eat birds? Behind you! Look behind you! sang Darcy. Ricky Ticky knew better than to waste time in staring. He jumped up in the air as high as he could go, and just under him whizzed by the head of Nagania, Nag's wicked wife. She had crept up behind him as he was talking to make an end of him. He heard her savage hiss as the stroke missed. He came down almost across her back, and if he had been an old mongoose, he would have known then that that was the time to break her back with one bite. But he was afraid of the terrible lashing return stroke of the cobra. He bit, indeed, but did not bite long enough and he jumped clear of the whisking tail, leaving Nagania torn and angry. Wicked, wicked Darcy, said Nag, lashing up as high as he could reach toward the nest in the thorn bush. But Darcy had built it out of reach of snakes, and it only swayed to and fro. Ricky Ticky felt his eyes growing red and hot. When a mongoose's eyes grow red, he is angry. And he sat back on his tail and hind legs like a little kangaroo and looked all around him and shattered with rage. 
but Nag and Nagania had disappeared into the grass. When a snake misses its stroke, it never says anything or gives any sign of what it means to do next. Ricky Tikki did not care to follow them, for he did not feel sure that he could manage two snakes at once. So he trotted off to the gravel path near the house and sat down to think. It was a serious matter for him. If you read the old books of natural history, you will find they say that when the mongoose fights the snake and happens to get bitten, he runs off and eats some herb that cures him. That is not true. The victory is only a matter of quickness of eye and quickness of foot. Snakes blow against mongoose's jump, and as no eye can follow the motion of a snake's head when it strikes, this makes things much more wonderful than any magic herb. Ricky Tikki knew he was a young mongoose, and it made him all the more pleased to think that he had managed to escape a blow from behind. It gave him confidence in himself, and when Teddy came running down the path, Ricky Tikki was ready to be petted. But just as Teddy was stopping, something wriggled a little in the dust, and a tiny voice said, Be careful. I am death. It was Kurate, the dusty brown snakeling that lies for choice on the dusty earth, and his bite is as dangerous as the cobra's. But he is so small that nobody thinks of him, and so he does the more harm to people. Ricky Tikki's eyes grew red again, and he danced up to Kurate with the peculiar rocking, swaying motion that he had inherited from his family. It looks very funny, but it is so perfectly balanced, a gait that you can fly off from at any angle if you please, and in dealing with snakes, this is an advantage. If Ricky Tikki had only known he was doing a much more dangerous thing than fighting Nag, for Kurate is so small and can turn so quickly that unless Ricky bit him close to the back of the head, he would get the return stroke in his eye or his lip. But Ricky did not know. His eyes were all red, and he rocked back and forth, looking for a good place to hold. Kurate struck out. Ricky jumped sideways and tried to run in, but the wicked little dusty gray head lashed within a fraction of his shoulder, and he had to jump over the body, and the head followed his heels close. Teddy shouted to the house, Oh, look here! Our mongoose is killing a snake! And Ricky Ticky heard a scream from Teddy's mother. His father ran out with a stick, but by the time he came out, Kurate had lunged out once too far, and Ricky Ticky had sprung, jumped on the snake's back, dropped his head far between his forelegs, bitten as high up the back as he could get hold, and rolled away. That bite paralyzed Kurate, and Ricky Ticky was just going to eat him up from the tail after the custom of his family at dinner, when he remembered that a full meal makes a slow mongoose, and if he wanted all his strength and quickness ready, he must keep himself thin. He went away for a dust bath under the castor oil bushes while Teddy's father beat the dead curate. 
Oh, what is the use of that? Thought Ricky to himself. I have settled it all. And then Teddy's mother picked him up from the dust and hugged him, crying that he had saved Teddy from death. And Teddy's father said he was a providence, and Teddy looked on with big, scared eyes. Ricky Tiki was rather amused at all the fuss, which, of course, he did not understand. Teddy's mother might just as well have petted Teddy for playing in the dust. Ricky was thoroughly enjoying himself. That night at dinner, walking to and fro among the wine glasses on the table, he might have stuffed himself three times over with nice things, but he remembered Nag and the Ganya, and thought it was very pleasant to be patted and petted by Teddy's mother and to sit on Teddy's shoulder. Teddy carried him off to bed and insisted on Ricky Tiki sleeping under his chin. Ricky Tiki was too well bred to bite or scratch, but as soon as Teddy was asleep, he went off for his nightly walk round the house, and in the dark he ran up against Chachandra, the muskrat, creeping around by the wall. Chachandra is a broken-hearted little beast. He whimpers and cheeps all night, trying to make up his mind to run into the middle of the room. But he never gets there. Ricky Tiki, don't kill me said Chachandra, almost weeping. Those who kill snakes get killed by snakes, said Chachandra more scornfully than ever. And how am I to be sure that Nag won't mistake me for you some dark night? There's not the least danger. But Nag is in the garden, and I know you don't go there. My cousin Chewy, the rat, told me, said Chachandra, and then he stopped. Told you what? Nag is everywhere, Ricky Tiki. You should have talked to Chua in the garden. Chachandra sat down and cried till the tears rolled off his whiskers. Oh, I'm a very poor man, he sobbed. I never had spirit enough to run out into the middle of the room. I mustn't tell you anything. Can't you hear, Ricky Tiki? Ricky Tiki listened. The house was as still as still, but he thought he could just catch the faintest scratch-scratch in the world, a noise as faint as that of a wasp walking on a window pane, the dry scratch of a snake's scales on brickwork. That nag or Nagania, he thought to himself, and he is crawling into the bathroom sluice. You're right, Shachandra. I should have talked to Chua. He stole off to Teddy's bathroom, but there was nothing there, and then to Teddy's mother's bathroom. At the bottom of the smooth plaster wall, there was a brick pulled out to make a sluice for the bathwater, and as Ricky Ticky stole in by the masonry curb where the bath is put, he heard Nag and Nagania whispering together outside in the moonlight. When the house is emptied of people, said Nagania to her husband, we will have to go away, and then the garden will be our own again. Go in quietly, and remember that the big man who killed Kurait is the first one to bite. Then come out and tell me, and we will hunt for Ricky Ticky together. But are you sure that there is anything to be gained by killing the people? 
said Nag. Everything. When there were no people in the bungalow, did we have any mongoose in the garden? So as long as the bungalow is empty, we are king and queen of the garden. And remember that as soon as our eggs in the melon bed hatch, as they may tomorrow, our children will need room and quiet. I had not thought of that, said Nag. I will go, but there is no need that we should hunt for Ricky Ticky afterward. I will kill the big man and his wife and the child if I can and come away quickly. Then the bungalow will be empty and Ricky Ticky will go. Ricky Ticky tingled all over with rage and hatred at this, and then Nag's head came through the sluice, and his five feet of cold body followed it. Angry as he was, Ricky Ticky was very frightened as he saw the size of the big cobra. Nag coiled himself up, raised his head, and looked into the bathroom in the dark, and Ricky could see his eyes glitter. Now if I kill him here and again you will know. And if I fight him on the open floor, the odds are in his favor. What am I to do? Said Ricky Ticky Tavy. Nag waved to and fro, and then Ricky Ticky heard him drinking from the biggest water jar that was used to fill the bath. That is good. Now when Karate was killed, the big man had a stick. He may have that stick still, but when he comes in to bathe in the morning, he will not have a stick. I shall wait here till he comes. Naganya, do you hear me? I shall wait here in the cool till daytime. There was no answer from outside, so Ricky Ticky knew Naganya had gone away. Nag coiled himself down, coil by coil, round the bulge at the bottom of the water jar, and Ricky Ticky stayed still as death. After an hour, he began to move, muscle by muscle, toward the jar. Nag was asleep, and Ricky Ticky looked at his big back, wondering which would be the best place for a good hold. If I don't break his back at the first jump, said Ricky, he can still fight. And if he fights, oh, Ricky. He looked at the thickness of the neck below the hood, but that was too much for him. And a bite near the tail would only make Nag savage. It must be the head, he said at last. The head above the hood. And when I am once there, I must not let go. Then he jumped. The head was lying a little clear of the water jar under the curve of it. And, as his teeth met, Ricky braced his back against the bulge of the red earthenware to hold down the head. This gave him just one second's purchase, and he made the most of it. Then he was battered to and fro as a rat is shaken by a dog. To and fro on the floor, up and down and around in great circles. But his eyes were red, and he held on as the body 
cart whipped over the floor, upsetting the tin dipper and the soap dish and the flesh brush, and banged against the tin side of the bath. As he held, he closed his jaws tighter and tighter, for he made sure he would be banged to death, and for the honor of his family, he preferred to be found with his teeth locked. He was dizzy, aching, and felt shaken to pieces when something went off like a thunderclap just behind him. A hot wind knocked him senseless, and red fire singed his fur. The big man had been wakened by the noise and had fired both barrels of a shotgun into Nag just behind the hood. Ricky Ticky held on with his eyes shut, for now he was quite sure he was dead. But the head did not move, and the big man picked him up and said, It's the mongoose again, Alice. The little chap has saved our lives now. Then Teddy's mother came in with a very white face and saw what was left of Nag, and Ricky Ticky dragged himself to Teddy's bedroom and spent half the rest of the night shaking himself tenderly to find out whether he was really broken into forty pieces, as he fancied. When morning came, he was very stiff, but well pleased with his doings. Now I have Naganya to settle with, and she will be worse than five nags, and there's no knowing when the eggs she spoke of will hatch. Goodness, I must go and see Darcy. Without waiting for breakfast, Ricky Ticky ran to the thorn bush where Darcy was singing a song of triumph at the top of his voice. The news of Nag's death was all over the garden, for the sweeper had thrown the body on the rubbish heap. Oh, you stupid tuft of feathers, said Ricky Ticky angrily. Is this the time to sing? Nag is dead, dead is dead, sang Darcy. The valiant Ricky Ticky caught him by the head and held fast. The big man brought the bang stick, and Nag fell in two pieces. He shall never eat my babies again. Oh, that's true enough. But where's Naganya? said Ricky Ticky, looking carefully around him. Naganya came to the bathroom sluice and called for Nag, Darzee went on. And Nag came out on the end of a stick. The sweeper picked him up on the end of a stick and threw him upon the rubbish heap. Let us sing about the great, the red-eyed Riggy-Ticky. And Darzee filled his throat and sang. You don't know when to do the right thing at the right time. You're safe enough in your nest there, but it's war for me down here. Stop singing a minute, Darzee said Rikki-Tikki. For the great, the beautiful, Rikki-Tikki's sake, I will stop, said Darzee. What is it, O killer of the terrible night? Where is Naganya for the third time? On the rubbish heap by the stables, mourning for Nag. Great is Rikki-Tikki with the white teeth. Bother my white teeth. Have you ever heard where she keeps her eggs? In the melon bed on the end nearest the wall where the sun strikes nearly all day. She hid them there weeks ago. And you never thought it worthwhile to tell me? The end nearest the wall, you said? Ricky-ticky, you are not going to eat her eggs. 
Not exactly, no, Darcy. If you have a grain of sense, you will fly off to the stables and pretend that your wing is broken and let Nagania chase you away to this bush. I must get to the melon bed, and if I went there now, she'd see me. Darcy was a feather-brained little fellow who could never hold more than one idea at a time in his head. And just because he knew that Nagania's children were born in eggs like his own, he didn't think at first that it was fair to kill them. But his wife was a sensible bird, and she knew that the cobra's eggs meant young cobras later on. So she flew off from the nest and left Darzee to keep the babies warm and continue his song about the death of Nag. Darzee was very like a man in some ways. She fluttered in front of Nagania by the rubbish heap and cried out, Oh, my wing is broken. The boy in the house threw a stone at me and broke it. Then she fluttered more desperately than ever. Nagania lifted up her head and hissed, you weren't Rikki-Tikki when I would have killed him. Indeed and truly, you've chosen a bad place to be lame in. And she moved toward Darzee's wife, slipping along the dust. The boy broke it with a stone, shrieked Darzee's wife. Well, it may be some consolation to you when you're dead to know that I shall settle accounts with the boy. My husband lies on the rubbish heap this morning, but before night the boy in the house will lie very still. What is the use of running away? I am sure to catch you, little fool. Look at me. Darzee's wife knew better than to do that, for a bird who looks at a snake's eyes gets so frightened that she cannot move. Darzee's wife fluttered on, piping sorrowfully and never leaving the ground, and Nagania quickened her pace. Rikki-Tikki heard them going up the path from the stables, and he raced for the end of the melon patch near the wall. There in the warm litter above the melons, very cunningly hidden, he found twenty-five eggs, about the size of a bantam's eggs, but with whitish skin instead of shell. I was not a day too soon, he said, for he could see the baby cobras curled up inside the skin, and he knew that the minute they were hatched, they would each kill a man or a mongoose. He bit off the tops of the eggs as fast as he could, taking care to crush the young cobras, and turned over the litter from time to time to see whether he had missed any. At last there were only three eggs left, and Rikki-Tikki began to chuckle to himself when he heard Darzee's wife screaming. Rikki-Tikki, I led Nagania toward the house, and she has gone into the veranda, and oh, come quickly, she means killing. Rikki-Tikki smashed two eggs and tumbled backward down the melon bed with a third egg in his mouth, and he scuttled to the veranda as hard as he could put foot to the ground. Teddy and his mother and father were there at early breakfast, but Rikki-Tikki saw that they were not eating anything. They sat stone still, and their faces were white. 
Nagania was coiled up on the matting by Teddy's chair, within easy striking distance of Teddy's bare leg, and she was swaying to and fro. Son of a big man that killed Nag, she hissed. Stay still. I am not ready yet. Wait a little. Keep very still, all three of you. If you move, I strike. And if you do not move, I strike. Oh, foolish people who killed my nag. Teddy's eyes were fixed on his father, and all his father could do was to whisper, Sit still, Teddy. You mustn't move. Teddy, keep still. Then Ricky Ticky came up and cried, Turn around, Nagania! Turn and fight! All in good time, she said, without moving her eyes. I will settle my account with you presently. Look at your friends, Ricky Ticky. They are still and white. They are afraid. They dare not move. And if you come a step closer, I strike. Look at your eggs in the melon bed near the wall. Go and look, Nagania. The big snake turned half round and saw the egg on the veranda. Ah, give it to me. Rikki-tikki put his paws one on each side of the egg, and his eyes were blood-red. What price for a snake's egg? For a young cobra? For a young king cobra? For the last, for the very last of the brood? The ants are eating all the others down by the melon bed. Nagania spun clear round, forgetting everything for the sake of the one egg. Rikki-tikki saw Teddy's father shoot out a big hand, catch Teddy by the shoulder, and drag him across the little table with the teacup safe and out of reach of Nagania. Tricked! 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 The boy is safe, and it was I, 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 the caught nag by the hood last night in the bathroom. Then he began to jump up and down, all four feet together, his head close to the floor. He threw me to and fro, but he could not shake me off. He was dead before the big man blew him in two. I did it. Come then, Nicania, come and fight with me. You shall not be a widow long. Nagania saw that she had lost her chance of killing Teddy, and the egg lay between Rikki-Tikki's paws. Give me the egg, Rikki-Tikki. Give me the last of my eggs, and I will go away and never come back, she said, lowering her hood. Yes, yes, you will go away, and you will never come back, for you will go to the rubbish heap with Nag. Fight, widow. The big man has gone for his gun. Fight! Rikki-Tikki was bounding all round Nagania, keeping just out of reach of her stroke, his eyes like hot coals. 
Nagaina gathered herself together and flung out at him. Ricky Tiki jumped up and backward. Again and again and again she struck, and each time her head came with a whack on the matting of the veranda, and she gathered herself together like a watch spring. Then Ricky Tiki danced in a circle to get behind her, and Nagaina spun round to keep her head to his head, so that the rustle of her tail on the matting sounded like dry leaves blown along by the wind. He had forgotten the egg. It still lay on the veranda, and Nagania came nearer and nearer to it, till at last, while Ricky Tiki was drawing breath, she caught it in her mouth, turned to the veranda steps, and flew like an arrow down the path with Ricky Tiki behind her. When the cobra runs for her life, she goes like a whiplash, flicked across a horse's neck. Ricky Tiki knew that he must catch her or all the trouble would begin again. She headed straight for the long grass by the thorn bush, and as he was running, Ricky Tiki heard Darzi still singing his foolish little song of triumph. But Darzi's wife was wiser. She flew off her nest as Nagania came along and flapped her wings about Nagania's head. If Darzi had helped, they might have turned her, but Nagania only lowered her hood and went on. Still, the instant's delay brought Ricky Tiki up to her, and as she plunged into the rat hole where she and Nag used to live, his little white teeth were clenched on her tail, and he went down with her. And very few mongooses, however wise and old they may be, care to follow a cobra into its hole. It was dark in the hole, and Ricky Tiki never knew when it might open out and give Nagania room to turn and strike at him. He held on savagely and stuck out his feet to act as brakes on the dark slope of the hot, moist earth. Then the grass by the mouth of the hole stopped waving, and Darzi said, it's all over with Ricky Ticky. We must sing his death song. Valiant Ricky Ticky is dead, for Nagania will surely kill him underground. So he sang a very mournful song that he made up on the spur of the minute, and just as he got to the most touching part, the grass quivered again, and Ricky Ticky covered with dirt, dragged himself out of the hole, leg by leg, licking his whiskers. Darzi stopped with a little shout. Ricky Ticky shook some of the dust out of his fur and sneezed. It's all over, he said. The widow will never come out again. And the red ants that lived between the grass stems heard him and began to troop down one after another to see if he had spoken the truth. Ricky Ticky curled himself up in the grass and slept where he was, slept and slept till it was late in the afternoon, for he had done a hard day's work. Now, he said when he awoke, I will go back to the house. Tell the coppersmith, Darzi, and he will tell the garden that Nagania is dead. The coppersmith is a bird who makes a noise exactly like the beating of a little hammer on a copper pot. 
And the reason he is always making it is because he is the town crier to every Indian garden and tells all the news to everybody who cares to listen. As Ricky Tikki went up the path, he heard his attention notes like a tiny dinner gong, and then the steady ding dong tuck, nag is dead. Dead ding dong, Nagaina is dead. A ding dang tuck. That set all the birds in the garden singing and the frogs croaking, for Nag and Nagaina used to eat frogs as well as little birds. When Ricky got to the house, Teddy and Teddy's mother, she looked very white after all, for she had been fainting. And Teddy's father came out and almost cried over him. And that night he ate all that was given him till he could eat no more. And went to bed on Teddy's shoulder, where Teddy's mother saw him when she came to look at night. He saved our lives and Teddy's life, she said to her husband. Just think he saved all our lives. Ricky Tiki woke up with a jump, for the mongooses are light sleepers. Oh, it's you, said he. What are you bothering for? All the cobras are dead, and if they weren't, I'm here. Ricky Tikki had a right to be proud of himself, but he did not grow too proud, and he kept that garden as a mongoose should keep it, with tooth and jump and spring and bite, till never a cobra dared show its head inside the wall. The End Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. They lived with their mother in a sandbank underneath the root of a very big fir tree. Now, my dears, said old Mrs. Rabbit one morning, you may go into the fields or down the lane, but don't go into Mr. McGregor's garden. Your father had an accident there. He was put into a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Now, run along. Don't get into mischief. I'm going out. Then old Mrs. Rabbit took a basket and her umbrella and went through the wood to the baker's. She bought a loaf of brown bread and five currant buns. Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, who were good little bunnies, went down the lane together to gather blackberries. But Peter who was very naughty, ran straight away to Mr. McGregor's garden and squeezed under the gate. First he ate some lettuces and some French beans, and then he ate some radishes, and then, feeling rather sick, he went to look for some parsley. But round the end of a cucumber frame, whom should he meet but Mr. McGregor? Mr. McGregor was on his hands and knees, planting out young cabbages. But he jumped up and ran after Peter, waving a rake and calling out, Stop, thief! But Peter was most dreadfully frightened. He rushed all over the garden, for he had forgotten the way back to the gate. He lost one shoe among the cabbages and the other amongst the potatoes. After losing them, he ran on four legs and went faster, so that I think he might have got away altogether if he had not unfortunately run into a gooseberry net 
and got caught by the large buttons on his jacket. It was a blue jacket with brass buttons, quite new. Peter gave himself up for lost and shed big tears. But his sobs were overheard by some friendly sparrows, who flew to him in great excitement and implored him to exert himself. Mr. McGregor came up with a sieve, which he intended to pop on the top of Peter, but Peter wriggled out just in time, leaving his jacket behind him. He rushed into the tool shed and jumped into a can. It would have been a beautiful thing to hide in if it had not had so much water in it. Mr. McGregor was quite sure that Peter was somewhere in the tool shed, perhaps hidden underneath a flower pot. He began to turn them over carefully, looking under each. Presently, Peter sneezed. Mr. McGregor was after him in no time and tried to put his foot upon Peter, who jumped out of a window, upsetting three plants. Peter sat down to rest. He was out of breath and trembling with fright. He had not the least idea which way to go. Also, he was very damp with sitting in that can. After a time, he began to wander about, going lippity lippity. Not very fast, and looking all around, he found a door in a wall, but it was locked, and there was no room for a fat little rabbit to squeeze underneath. An old mouse was running in and out over the stone doorstep, carrying peas and beans to her family in the wood. Peter asked her the way to the gate, but she had such a large pea in her mouth she could not answer. She only shook her head at him. Peter began to cry. Then he tried to find his way straight across the garden, but he became more and more puzzled. Presently, he came to a pond where Mr. McGregor filled his water cans. A white cat was staring at some goldfish. She sat very, very still, but now and then the tip of her tail twitched as if it were alive. Peter thought it best to go away without speaking to her. He had heard about cats from his cousin, Little Benjamin Bunny. He went back towards the tool shed, but suddenly, quite close to him, he heard the noise of a hoe. <coughs> Peter scudded underneath the bushes, but presently, as nothing happened, he came out and climbed upon a wheelbarrow and peeped over. The first thing he saw was Mr. McGregor hoeing onions. His back was turned toward Peter, and beyond him was the gate. Peter got down very quietly off the wheelbarrow and started running as fast as he could go along a straight walk behind some black currant bushes. Mr. McGregor caught sight of him at the corner, but Peter did not care. He slipped underneath the gate and was safe at last in the wood outside the garden. Mr. McGregor hung up the little jacket and the shoes for a scarecrow to frighten the blackbirds. Peter never stopped running or looked behind him till he got home to the big fir tree. He was so tired that he flopped down upon the nice soft sand on the floor of the rabbit hole and shut his eyes. His mother was busy cooking. She wondered what he had done with his clothes. It was the second little jacket and pair of shoes that Peter had lost in a fortnight. I am sorry to say that Peter was not well during the evening. His mother put him to bed and made some chamomile tea, 
and she gave a dose of it to Peter. One teaspoonful to be taken at bedtime. But Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail had bread and milk and blackberries for supper. I hope you enjoyed our stellar top 10 podcast as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Thanks, as always, to our dear friend Paxton Stanley for his fabulous music and production. And thanks to you, our very special Planet Storytime fans, for inspiring us to bring you the very best children's content in the world of podcasting. Until next time, remember to keep using your imagination and see just how powerful your mind truly is. Goodbye for now. <laughs>